Welcome to the IAOMS podcast series, where we gather for unique conversations about advancing the specialty. This season, we're analyzing innovation adaptations with master surgeons around the world. This episode focuses on head and neck oncology, moderated by Dr. Jocelyn Shand, with special guests, Dr. David Weisenfeld and Dr. Eric Dirkst. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the session. Welcome to our podcast in the series on master surgeons who will be discussing the advancements and the innovations that have evolved over time. And today we're privileged to have two world-renowned head and neck oncology surgeons with us. Professor Eric Dirks joins us from Portland, Oregon in the United States. Professor David Wiesenfeld is from Melbourne, Australia, and they will be sharing their experience. We will start with some introductions. And Professor Dirks, could I ask you to let us know a little about your background and positions? Uh, certainly. And thank you for having me on the program. Uh, the chronological chronological order of my training was that I started in dental school at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky, USA, and then went to Wilmington, Delaware for residency in oral and maxillofacial surgery at what is now the Christiana Center. Um, I returned to Louisville and completed medical school, and I had an interest in head and neck, so I went to the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas for general surgery. This was the time of the big change in the U.S. when ENT took over head and neck from general surgery. I switched over into the ENT program and completed that, and then stayed in Dallas for five more years in the full-time ENT faculty. Uh, I then left full-time academics in 1990 and joined a, a guy who was similarly trained as me, Bryce Potter, and we formed the Head and Neck Surgical Associates, or HNSA. Uh, the HNSA is closely affiliated with the OMFS residency at Oregon Health and Science University, uh, and we, all of us at HNSA, have, uh, H, have uh, clinical faculty at OHSU. Um, we are a separate institution, however. Um, I started our first fellowship in head and neck oncologic and reconstructive surgery in 1992, and our second fellowship in advanced craniomaxillofacial and trauma surgery started in 2001. Um, I retired earlier this year, but remain closely involved in our activities. Again, thank you for having me. Thank you. And Professor Wiesenfeld, could I invite you to let us know about your roles? Thank you, thank you, Jocelyn, for your generous introduction. I qualified as a dentist and then trained as an oral and maxillofacial surgeon in Melbourne. Three years in Britain followed in Glasgow, Essex and London. Mentorship and the opportunity to be an essential team member led me to pursue a career in oral cancer care. After eight years of head of oral and maxillofacial surgery at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, I was appointed as director of the head and neck tumoring. This appointment involved into a director of both the Royal Melbourne and Peter McCallum Cancer Centres in Melbourne with the opening of the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre in 2016. Between the two centres, there's a throughput of about 600 head and neck patients per annum. My additional role as lead in research and education involves me in research and teaching. Most recently, we've had a publication of four papers on tongue cancer, 
and a five-part symposium on tongue cancer, which is available for everyone to see on the Torian Comprehensive Cancer website. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Professor Wiesenfeld. Now, obviously, you've dedicated many decades of care to patients with head and neck tumours. Can you tell us what has driven your ongoing interest in this area? The opportunity to assist patients and their families, many of them in dire need of care, is the driving force, particularly when that intervention can save a life, improve the quality of life and relieve suffering. Our focus is often on cure. However, in the last three years, we've had an increasing number of patients arriving at their first clinic appointment with advanced disease and only suitable for palliative intent care. Heartbreaking for them and their families, as well as for our team, who are highly motivated to provide curative care and functional rehabilitation. Teamwork is an equal driving force. Early in my career, I realised that head and neck is not a solo pursuit. Surgeons that have a solo approach and cannot accept team responsibilities or show respect for team members rapidly fall by the wayside and disappear from the discipline. At both institutions, we have a strong culture of collaboration and teamwork. Our weekly multidisciplinary meeting has more than 30 attendees from OMS, otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, plastic and reconstructive surgery, radiation and medical oncology, nursing, speech pathology, nutrition, radiology, nuclear medicine, pathology and dentistry. Sometimes we have palliative care in the room, thoracic surgeons, neurosurgeons and general surgeons. Patients are seen by multiple disciplines according to their tumor site and types. We have additional teams in sarcoma and melanoma available for consultation. This is all supported by a comprehensive database of patients. There's a dedicated pre-admission clinic with head and neck anesthetists, and we've recently established prehabilitation and ERAS enhanced recovery protocols. Research and teaching are the backbone of the structure, with trainees from all disciplines and five research laboratories working in head and neck within the precinct. I look forward to every Wednesday morning, our team day for the whole week, from Wednesday night when I'm ready to go to sleep. Thank you. And another aspect that you've both been involved with is the development of fellowship programs, and this is an important legacy. Professor Dirks, could you tell us about your experience and any challenges that you encountered in developing your advanced fellowship positions? Well, now tell me me how much time do we have uh challenges yes uh so after i joined hnsa in 1990 i ramped up the uh, the volume of our full scope head and neck surgery cases not just oral cancer then and now our scope is what we call brain to lungs or pleura to dura uh, and we do such things because combined our surgery cases down to laryngectomy thyroid tracheal reconstruction reconstruction all that stuff um, without question, being dual boarded in ENT and OMFA made this possible in the early 90s. It's, it's easier today for the for standard single specialty OMFS based fellowships to have this type of broad scope if they choose to. 
of the state ENT community became a great resource uh, for referrals uh, as the Oregon Health Science University ENT department was extremely busy and difficult for them to add volume. Uh, so the ENT community practice, usually they limit their, their scope of head and neck surgery to parotids and thyroids. And uh, one of my ENT friends summed up his referral pattern stating, if it drips or it have to, or if you have to plate it, I have no interest. Uh, <laughs> he refers everything else to me. <laughs> the, uh, the Oregon Society of Oral Maxillofacial was a wonderful source of patient referrals and our volume for our fellowship has never been an issue. On the other hand, funding was an early problem. Uh, and since 1997, we've had a full-time rotating resident from OHSU. Uh, but after I arrived and the, vo the volume increased, mm -hmm. we were working this single resident to death. Our main hospital is a level one trauma center, which conveniently had an in-house general surgery residency. So in order to arrange funding, I initially designed the one-year fellowship uh, that at least on paper was uh, six months of general surgery residency and six months of elective on our head and neck service. The fellows at that time were paid as general surgery residents for the entire year. Later on, our hospital lost its general surgery residency and the owner of a medical equipment company stepped in to endow our fellowship salary for five years. And he understood that we, we couldn't be preferential in the use of our plating materials. So I set up an equitable rotation scheme uh, among all of our plating vendors. Uh, later, the American Association of Oral Maxillofacial Foundation noticed that most of our fellowship graduates were going into academic positions. So they assumed the funding for another five years. Next, the private not-for-profit hospital within our fellowship within which our fellowship was based, noticed that the steady volume of major head and neck cancer cases that we brought in resulted not only in surgical revenue, but also a steady stream of CT scans, radiation oncology, medical oncology. We were really good for their business. So the hospital then offered to cover the stipend and benefit package for the fellows, and now part of which is passed through federal funding. But this arrangement continues for this day for the funding of our fellowship. Licensure for fellows can be a major problem in the United States. And uh, particularly this is true for singly qualified candidates uh, qualified in dentistry. Our American medical and dental licensure is done on a state-by-state -state basis and in dentistry it can vary considerably. So medical licensure straightforward even for most foreign applicants. But on the other hand, we cannot even consider a single degree foreign applicant due to the prohibited nature of our dental board in Oregon. Those are some of the problems we have had. Thank you. And uh, I think that's a global problem. So the fact that you've both established fellowships is a fantastic achievement. As you've both alluded to, the management of head and neck oncology can involve a number of different surgical specialties, including ENT, plastic and reconstructive, and general surgery. Professor Wiesenfeld, you've been the head of the head and neck tumor stream in a, at a comprehensive cancer center. Could you let us know your experience with OMS taking a leading role? 
The role has evolved very much depending upon personalities, experience and leadership skills. Similarly to other treatment centres, general surgeons were the head and neck team leaders at Royal Melbourne after the war in the 1940s. The increasing complexities in disease and treatment options during the 1950s, along with the development of subspecialties in surgery, notably OMS, ORL and PRS, as well as the emerging disciplines in radiation and medical oncology led to change in treatment teams, options and goals in the 1970s. Peter Mack evolved from the radiation department of the Royal Melbourne and the team was led by radiation oncologists. Through my training and early career, general surgeons led the team. I've had the privilege to work in centres led by altruistic general surgeons, plastic surgeons, and ORL head and neck <coughs> surgeons. My philosophy has been to see opportunities and walk through open doors. I did not expect to be appointed director from my background, clearly years of working diligently with an emphasis on clinical care, teaching and research was rewarded in the committee structure. Longevity within the institution saw burnout and retirements from adjacent specialties, which had department year heads 10 years my junior without extensive head and neck administrative experience. They mostly welcome my enthusiasm and skill set, particularly in understanding facial and oral anatomy, pathology and surgery. Of course, there are detractors and rivalry. OMS, with its referral base in dentistry and the prevalence of oral cancer, brings at least 50% of clinic referrals an enviable role within the team. The changing patterns of disease make it likely that this situation will persist. Professor Dirks, could you share your thoughts on this? And if you think there are advantages of an OMS being one of the principal disciplines? It has been my pleasure to have formally trained residents in both ENT and OMFS. Um, I've also worked with a number of rotators in plastic surgery as well. It has been my observation that in regard to the application of fine motor skills, OMFS has the clear advantage. There is no training that compares to that obtained from the repetitive performance of a dental cavity preparation with a high-speed, ultra-high-speed burr while viewing the tiny surgical site upside down and backwards in a mirror. You get this training by spending four years in dental school in the American system and nowhere else. ENT residents drill temporal bones under the microscope, and I know that well, but it's not the same. A second advantage dentally qualified surgeons have is that as dentists, we have a built-in advantage in orofacial reconstruction. We know where to put the fibula so that it will receive implants that will actually function. Our ENT and plastic colleagues don't know that they don't know some of these fundamental concepts that we take for granted and that we don't even think about. Having said all this, our ENT res resident rotators have the clear advantage of having attended four full years of medical school as compared to half that for our dual degree OMFS residents. The ENTs were generally better in the overall medical management of patients, or maybe this is just because it's a manifestation of the fact that the ENT residents were consistently at or near the top of their classes. Does this 
early advantage of better technical skills for the OMFS trainees translate into something that might lead these individuals to be the dominant specialty? I don't really think so. Individuals from any of the three specialties who have a deep interest in head and neck will pursue that interest and will seek out repetitive experiences that will ultimately level out their training advantages and disadvantages. What we need to strive for is to be sure that appropriate education and training opportunities are available to all three of the involved disciplines so that such motivated, motivated individuals have the potential for excellence. I think this will be where a leading surgical discipline in head and neck oncologic surgery might evolve. Patients with primary cancers in the oral cavity tend to do notably less well than patients with primary tumors in other head and neck sites. These patients require significant intensity of both care in the operating theater and in the intensive care unit and on the hospital floor. Oh yes, and these patients seem to require more care for a disproportionate amount of complications. Maybe it's the oral cavity cancer patients who particularly need the dentally qualified head and neck surgeon and his or her unique skill set. In the American compensation model, the reimbursement for head and neck cancer is notably low as compared to other fields of surgery, regardless of the discipline. This is one of the reasons there is no galloping crowd of young surgeons seeking subspecialty training in the head and neck, regardless of the discipline involved. In the US, the training practice of oral surgery can be quite lucrative, and this might provide a golden goose to offset the poor compensation of head and neck cancer work. This is part of the economic formula we use at HNSA to pay the rent and keep the lights on. Unfortunately, many American OMFS don't see it that way as they're too busy counting their golden eggs. With the amount of educational debt that we Americans accumulate in medical and dental education, I can't say that I really blame them. Crushed in the rush, yes. Thank you, Professor Dirks. Now, rehabilitation and quality of life is vitally important as an outcome when considering treatment. Professor Wiesenfeld, where do you see the specific rehabilitation issues and areas for focused attention with regard to our current approach to cancer treatment? Rehabilitation requires cure. We're heavily focused on improving cure rates, improving general medical and dental practitioner training in the detection of early disease. Early diagnosis has not been assisted by COVID over the last few years, with increasing numbers of incurable patients presenting to the first appointment clinics after sitting at home for three months, too scared to leave home and visit their GP or dentist. If all of our patients had early disease, rehabilitation would be much simpler. Rehabilitation requires a team, speech pathologists, nutritionists, reconstructive surgeons, implant surgeons, prosthodontists, in addition to experienced resective surgeon and radiation oncologists who can accurately prognosticate. Most of the patients now require composite resections, mucosa, bone, muscle, and sometimes skin. Many require free flap reconstruction, also often with composite flaps, bone, muscle, and skin, occasionally two free flaps, to the complexity of the defect, 
along with adjuvant radiotherapy. Insensate irradiated tissues, difficulty with moving the bolus and swallowing, sees more of our patients with lifelong ped feeding, poor speech and reduced quality of life, but they are alive. Virtual surgical planning has provided for improved outcomes, cosmesis, and the increased possibility of dental rehabilitation. It reduces theatre time, but not all patients are suitable for dental rehabilitation and the accelerated provision of a dental prosthesis. As always, case selection is very important, trying to pick those with a good prognosis and making sure that rehabilitation attempts do not interfere with adjuvant treatment and curability. Teeth in a day is not for every patient. Every question in head and neck begins with a collaborative team approach and ends with a collaborative team approach. Thank you. Now, Professor Dirks, you have a surgical career that spanned four decades. What has been the greatest change that you've observed in the management of head and neck cancer? And what's been the impact of that? Jocelyn, I could say two, two words, free flap, and then we'd be done. But let me drag this out a bit. In the 1970s, as an OMFS resident, I was involved in head and neck ablative surgery for those oral cancer patients we biopsied and referred to general surgery for treatment. General surgery did the trach and did the radical neck dissection. And after they eventually stopped the bleeding, they would ask us to do the mandibulectomy and the reconstruction. Whatever we wanted, free bone grafts that never worked or wounds that never healed. The complications were always plentiful and the outcomes were universally bad. In that era, general surgery and the surgical subspecialties existed in a hierarchical pyramid with cardiothoracic surgery and vascular surgery at the tip of the pyramid and the less desirable surgical fields in the wide part at the bottom. Although I never saw this in the diagram, I think general head and neck surgery had to be near the bottom. Not all, but many of the general surgeons, uh, general head and neck surgeons I worked with were frankly not very skilled. The reconstructions were terrible. The delta pectoral flap and later the pectoralis major flap improved reconstructions, but not by a whole lot. Head and neck surgery was not a highly desirable specialty for a general surgeon. Later in the operating theater at Norton Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky in 1979, the clouds parted oh, and, the, and the, I had a clear view of the future. And I was, as a senior medical student on my head and neck elective, I saw the wonderfully talented general head and neck surgeon, Mike Flynn, and the legendary plastic microsurgeon, Robert Ackland, perform a microvascular dorsalis pedis free flap to reconstruct a lateral tongue defect. It was amazing. I scrubbed with them on numerous such cases and saw Ackland routinely use free flaps for head and neck and other reconstructions as well. Although the dorsalis pedis flap has gone the way of the dodo bird, uh, microvascular free flap technology has been the single greatest advancement in oral head and neck cancer patient management in my career. And for numerous reasons, I'm not going to enumerate. Advancements in imaging from CT to MRI to include ultrasound merit an honorable mention. My prize for most promising goes 
to immunotherapy. A related question you did not ask, but which is very important, is what is the least changed part of head and neck cancer management? And that would be radiotherapy. Again, Jocelyn, thank you for involving me in this program. Thank you. And Professor Wiesenfeld, can we have your final comments following on in your thoughts regarding the greatest areas of change or, as Professor Dirk said, the most unchanged? Change is not guaranteed. We may not see it coming and we don't know why. There are changes in disease patterns, the advent of HPV vaccination and the near eradication of cervical cancer in vac vaccinated populations heralds the near eradication of HPV-related oropharyngeal cancer in the next 30 years as male vaccination becomes widespread. We're aware of changes in the etiology and demographics in tongue and oral cancer, with non-smoking, non-alcohol drinking females facing a rising incidence. Smoking rates in Australia are falling, in part due to government policy and sales tax innovations. We don't know why there are these demographic changes. Imaging and pathology techniques of today were not imagined 20 years ago, especially the versatility of PET and specific tumour markers. Another 20 years will likely see great progress. Surgical techniques continue to improve, Prehabilitation and ERAS, enhanced recovery after surgery, may improve survival and reduce treatment morbidity. Eric mentioned the evolution of immunotherapy, which is now well established for melanoma and cutaneous SCC in the head and neck, may well find a niche in mucosal SCC. Ongoing research is essential. Radiation precision and dose control making allowance for tumour reduction during treatment and replanning with weekly comb beam scans, all completed with AI, will see benefits. We're already seeing the benefits of that. Research is the future. And thank you to IOMS for arranging this symposium. Thanks very much to Jocelyn for leading it. And Eric, it's been a pleasure to listen to you. Thank you. Thank you both for your insights into this, and it's been an interesting discussion. Your contribution to the development of cancer services, research, along with teaching generations of surgeons is inspiring. Finally, I'd like to thank you both for sharing your thoughts. Our career is dedicated to caring for patients with head and neck cancer. Thank you again for joining us today. Visit us online at www.iaoms.org to become a member of our vibrant global community and to access a variety of education and timely resources. Stay up to date on IAOMS by following us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're here so you're the first to know when new episodes are released. Until next time.